Hello, I'm Alice Corner, producer of Work Reimagined, a Conscious Culture podcast. In today's episode, Heather Lee Executive Director of Conscious Culture, talks to Lisa Gable, an author, CEO, former presidential appointee, US ambassador, UN delegate, and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, and asks her the one big question. How can companies fail during a turnaround? Hi, I'm Lisa Gable. It is such a pleasure to be with you today. My background includes time in government, business and philanthropy, so a whole mix of things to talk about during our discussion. This is Work Reimagined. Today we have Lisa Gable with us. As a CEO, former U.S. ambassador, and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, Lisa has orchestrated the successful turnarounds of private and public organizations in all industries. Over her career, Lisa realized the key to course correct when things go south is applying the discipline of process engineering. She has shared this powerful method in the book, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. Lisa, welcome to Work Reimagined. Well, thanks for having me. It's so great to meet you and hear about all of our common points of interest. Your book is a strategic field guide for any leader facing a turnaround challenge at any level company, project team, and really almost any type of challenge. Um, You've distilled years of your experience and wisdom into this great model, and you have some fabulous examples. My one big question, and this may not be an easy question as your book has been out only for a short time, is this, how could someone, some team, some company fail in a turnaround if they follow your four-step process? What could go wrong or get in the way? You know what always gets in the way are people. That's why who gets in the way. And I would really boil it down to this. Um, it's hubris. And combine that with people allowing their own self-interest to guide their decision-making versus the best interest of the organization. Within any organization, there's this legal concept called the standard of care. And I don't think that people are bad. But what happens is when you're going through a turnaround, it is difficult. It it fundamentally requires you to sacrifice. You're sacrificing your time. In some cases, you're sacrificing money. And people can become resentful of that. Even good people can. And so all of a sudden, the longer people stay in it, they may make shortcuts or make decisions really based on what's best for them or where they want to go next versus what's best for the organization. And so the number one thing you have to do is you have to constantly maintain what is the most important thing for the organization to thrive and survive. Remind yourself somebody's giving you a paycheck, so you're getting paid to do a job. And the bottom line is you have an obligation to always, always make every single decision that's best for the organization, not one that benefits you. I love it. Let's talk about why turnarounds are needed. So you wrote in the book, and I quote, every day projects, teams, and organizations find themselves stuck with a seemingly intractable problem. And you give some great whys, like why do things go south? Can you summarize some of those for us? Yeah, I mean, sometimes people keep trying the same thing over and over again. I was always the resume that headhunters never put on the top of the stack. Uh, Sometimes I've gotten a job when they've gone through three rounds of interviews and said, okay, nobody is coming up with a solution because you have to think outside of the box. They're normally at the point that I walk in the door, they've tried everything. They've tried all the traditional mechanisms. 
And the reality is there's some underlying cause of a disease of an organization that you may not be getting to because we keep executing based on sometimes what business books tell us to do or what your professors told you to do. And you have to keep digging and digging and digging and finding that underlying cause of what's making this thing not function. Now, in some cases, the organization may have lived beyond its purpose. Some, and, and that is okay. It's really okay. I think some people have a very difficult time uh, recognizing that the organization was built at a particular point in time to fulfill a particular business. Maybe there was a business need. Maybe there was a community need if it's a healthcare organization or a not-for-profit or even a government um, activity. There are government activities that were started and they were started for particular reasons. And for some odd reason in the government, no one ever thinks about ending something. We just start something new. You can't do that in business. You can't do that in the not-for-profit realm because you need revenue. And if what you are producing no longer has a market that's going to give you money to do that thing, then it's time to walk away. Celebrate and let it go. And as I talked about earlier, sometimes people's sown self-interest end up causing a difficulty within the organization. Because once people see you operating on your own self-interest as opposed to the organization's self-interest, they lose their motivation. And so you really have to analyze what's causing the problem. Does the organization still need to exist as it is designed today? And are we getting in the way of solving the problem itself? That's wonderful. I'm sure you've probably heard the phrase. Um, I was taught early in my career, the question behind the question, right? Yep. So ask a question, then don't stop, right? And I think that's what you're saying is, you know, keep digging. Often people just, we just stop at the first question, right? Yeah. Oh, that's, there's the problem, okay. <laughs> And it'll surprise people sometimes. I was the US ambassador to the World's Expo, which is what used to be known as the World's Fair. And I'm the only person in 175 years that's run an expo on budget without an inspector general's report. It's crazy uh, because people were looking consistently at a surface level element of what they thought was wrong. And the reality is it was so much more deep than that. What it was is that they set up an infrastructure that was not sustainable. They set up an infrastructure with a set of rules that prohibited raising money. It started hundreds of years ago. It actually didn't start today. So there's a book called The Devil in a White City, and it's about a serial killer at the Chicago World's Fair. But if you also are reading it from what happened in the World's Fair, it really gets to that nugget as to how dysfunctional the entire design was, which is why it's never actually worked well for governments uh, to support. And it's an issue that pops up uh, every time they have a World's Fair, every five years in governments across the world. Lisa, you have two key tenets, discipline and diplomacy, that are the cornerstone of your turnaround method. And indeed, I would say they seem to be cornerstone for how you approach life. Can you talk about what discipline and diplomacy mean to you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I recently gave a talk to a Fortune 100s alumni association, thousands of people, uh, many of whom were still in their jobs in their late uh, 40s, making the decision about what they wanted to do 10 years from now. And other people were in the process of retiring and some had retired. And what we noticed is that the process-driven approach that I outline in the book is applicable in business and also in your personal life. And, and, I, and I'm a very process-driven person. One is that you visualize the future you want to have, but then you have to audit 
your past. You have to look and see what's still relevant. You have to look at your assets. They're always going to be financial assets, whether it's personal again or in business. As we see economic constraints, you're going to have to make decisions, what stays and what goes. And then I always operate along the lines of jobs one, two, and three. And I tell a lot of working moms this, you can't be all things to all people. You've got to make a decision. What's most important to you? If you're in a business, what's most important to you? And really focus on um, executing on those things and making sure that the other things, they don't matter as much. And finally, you're developing a path to the future. And through all of these situations. I think the critical element is whether it's on a personal level or it's on a business level. Every time you make a major decision, it actually impacts another human being. And it does not mean that you you stay away from decisions which impact another person because you have to make hard decisions in life. You have to make hard decisions in business. But you need to acknowledge the changes impact on that other person. It can be on family members, or it can be on employees. It can be on a customer. Something may have changed where you no longer can do things that you were doing because you need to focus on something else in order to achieve the objectives that you've outlined for yourself. You have to articulate it to them in the way that they are used to talking. And so one thing I, I speak a great deal about, and I counsel my daughter on this, even in her personal life, which is you speak in the, when you have a hard conversation, talk in someone else's vernacular, really spend the time to understand someone else's point of view, someone else's situation, how they might articulate their situation. And then when you speak to them, don't talk to them the way you see the world, talk from their perspective and say, I understand that you're, you need these things for the following reasons. And I need to make a change. And when I make this change, it's going to have this impact on you. And you articulate back to them what the impact is. By the mere fact that you have acknowledged someone else's pain point, then you have set up a situation where you can together identify a path forward that will benefit them and that will benefit you. A good friend of mine just wrote a book called The Change Management. I just did her review for Amazon literally an hour ago. And I think that's one of the things that she said is you need to always do things that benefit everyone, not equally, because you will have to do things that benefit you more than another person, but you have to think in the comprehensive part. And so what I look at is that life is not a competition. It's a collaboration. And as long as you keep that framework you'll be able to manage life in a way that provides opportunities for a lot of people, but allows you to maintain the discipline that you need to basically manage your time and your wallet. I think that's a beautiful description of diplomacy that, that you, just, you just gave. And, and we see it in your book where you talk about inclusivity, that communication, speaking in other people's vernacular. And I'll go look up change management, the book, but I love that everyone should benefit, maybe not equally, but everyone should benefit from what we're doing and, and that solution. And, and I, I think these are fabulous things, like you said, to take to not just work, but to our life. So you shared a, a little bit about the, your turnaround method consists of four steps, right? Visualize the future, break down the past, create a path from present to future, and then execute with speed, confidence, and heart. We don't have the time to delve into all these details on the podcast. And, and of course, we want people to go read your book. So we don't want to give away everything either here. But I'd love to 
hit a few of the key takeaways. Um, and the first one is in visualizing the future, that first step in your turnaround method. You tell people to stop thinking about present problems and imagine the future. And then you introduce this concept of jobs one, two, and three. So what are jobs one, two, and three? Well, job one is the one thing you have to do to survive. And, and, and again, putting it in a personal level or a business level, when I came into Intel Corporation, the company and the overarching semiconductor industry had lost market share to the Japanese. The U.S. was no longer the dominant. And so I was in the government, met the Intel people, and then moved over into Intel Corporation, where they were basically trying to recapture market share from the Japanese. Ultimately, between 1989 and 1994, Intel ended up owning 85% of the semiconductor market. So they gained dominance, and everyone standardized on Intel chips uh, pretty much across all technology platforms at that time. That was the most important thing to survival. Everything else was a backup singer. And so I, I always talk about jobs two and three as being the backup singers to the vocalist, right? There's some other things that you need to do in order to give strength to the vocalist to make sure that he or she is the center of the show, that that song is getting out there and that that objective is being accomplished. And so that's um, that's really the way I think about it. It's funny, during the pandemic, I was doing a lot of podcasts aimed at working moms. And I finally said something. I'm like, no one cares except you if you wash all the sheets and towels every week. Nobody cares. Most people actually have twice as many sheets and towels as they need. So if you want to do this every two weeks, it's all right. We're not going to tell anybody because job one is taking care of that thing in your family. And if all these other things end up being distractions, focus on job one. I love what you've told working moms. <laughs> I am one. My girls are, are young adults now, but um, I wish someone had told me that more strongly. As you know, conscious culture is committed to the ideas that companies can bridge execution with humanity by pe putting people at the center of work, purposely building organizational culture so that work is better. In your book, you comment that change is always about people. And earlier in the podcast, you talked about um, people, hubris of people getting in the way, right, as well. So it's kind of a, a two-sided coin there. The examples you share in the book, of course, are about projects or products and services that you've worked on for turnaround. But do you think that your method can be applied to an organization that has an ailing or even harmful culture? You have to get rid of what I call the bad apples. There's a story in my book I talk about the bad apples versus the bad bananas. And what I mean by that are bad apples. The thing with an apple is you have a bad apple, you put it in a bowl next to the other apples and it changes colors, right? What people don't understand is bananas are worse. If you have a bad banana and you put it anywhere in your house, it's not necessarily next to the bananas in the kitchen. You stick it in your bedroom, the bananas in the kitchen turn. And that's when you have a fundamentally broken organization is that if, if things that are happening in another division have such a negative effect, whether on the culture or the execution of another division, then you've got to chase that down at its root. And those are the people that you need to get rid of. And you really do because um, it will continue to erode your ability to move forward. And it's a very hard process, but if you think about it that way, uh, we even have conversations. Once people hear my philosophy, they'll go, okay, so is he a banana or an apple? I'm like, oh, he's absolutely a banana. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and, 
and now anyone who works for me really understands that. But you've got you've got to get those people out of the organization. It's just not healthy at all. And once you do, then you can start focusing. I never focus on silos, but you know, organizations are big, so you have to fix different things at different points in time. You're bringing new things online. You can't do it all at the same time. Uh, and and once you eliminate that problem, you can start bringing things online pretty quickly. Right. And then hopefully following maybe your process and with discipline and diplomacy, companies could could fix that culture, right? Bring it up to healthy. I feel like there's going to be a whole, I think there's potential for either an infographic or a meme. It could go either way <laughs> on bad apples and bad bananas after this podcast. I'm not sure. So Lisa, you wrote your book. I, I think partly, did you write your book? During the COVID. Whole time during the pandemic, right? So the whole, whole time during COVID. Yes. And it was published in October 21, just recently. Um, it does feel like a lifetime. Um, October 21 feels like a lifetime away in some ways because, you know, as the pandemic impacted fronts have kind of started to open, we have these new challenges, right? Inflationary pressures, the continued supply chain disruptions, employee shifts, um, as we're, you know, and surprising kind of grassroots led union movements. We look at like Starbucks and Amazon and what's happening there. Um, you know, and then of course, this tragic and unimaginable war action by Russia against the Ukraine, we have a lot of very real, seemingly intractable problems, as you talk about in your book. And yet, we've also seen that when constraints are extreme, like the pandemic or induced energy crisis, we can change. What are your thoughts about change in the future? Do you have more or less hope that companies and communities and even nation states that we can turn around problems and challenges more successfully, maybe even faster? I have hope for the future. I'm not happy about where we are right now. Uh, so I wouldn't say, you know, I don't want to preface it. I'm a very optimistic person. So I continue to find the good and the bad things that are going on. Um, and I've really been very inspired recently. I've been sharing a survey that was done with the Ukraine women on LinkedIn who fled the country and also those who made a decision to leave, live in the country. And all they talk about in that survey is the fact that they want mentorship because they plan to rebuild despite the ambiguous nature of their future. And we can all learn from that. The future is ambiguous right now. It just is. But throughout history, we have seen the world go through some really, really, really bad things. And yet we emerge from it better and stronger. And so what is incumbent upon those of us who have the ability to do it is to continue to push forward in the same way that those women are and not give up. And what I tell people is, and I'm a big believer on this, I write a lot about leadership, but I truly believe that each of us has the capability to pick up the mantle of leadership and do something at a point in time that will make a positive difference in other people's lives. And don't underestimate your power to do it, whether you are a tractor driver in the Ukraine, or if you were a police officer during 9-11 when the towers were hit, or you were a truck driver during the pandemic, all three very unexpected places to find our heroes, yet they all are heroes. And so you as an individual do have the power um, and we live in a great democracy. We are allied with, with wonderful democracies that are holding together. We are seeing the power of the individual really play out in a way that 
is unique. And I think because social media allows us to interact with each other uh, at levels that we never have before. Uh, and as long as we keep linking arms and we keep moving forward, we will get we will get through it. And the great thing is, is that the innovation is at an all time high. Well, and Lisa, you are a hero leading by example, I think with your career, your book now, I did see the LinkedIn shares and the, the Ukrainian poll that you shared and, and listeners could go and check that out on your LinkedIn as well. And um, thank you so much for, for being one of those examples and one of those heroes. So this closes out our time with Lisa Gable, author of Turn Around, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South, an essential strategic framework guide for leaders facing challenging work to be done and wanting to succeed with both discipline and diplomacy. Lisa, if people want to stay in touch with you, find your book or connect, how can they do that? Well, I have a website called lisagable.com. So the easiest place that tells you where to buy my book also will connect you to my digital platforms, which are Lisa Gable Official on Insta and Facebook. And then connect with me on LinkedIn. I answer questions um, on all the platforms, but LinkedIn is the easiest place. And I've made wonderful relationships uh, through that platform. And I really do want to help people. I'm at a point in my life where I've been extremely blessed and I am open to pointing people in the right direction, um, making those linkages or answering a question. So would love to engage with you. And as I said, uh, the only way we can move forward is if we do it together. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, I always love to hear from authors what they're reading and would recommend. So what book besides yours should we all be reading now? Oh my gosh, I, um, I was on a depressing angle for a while. <laughs> Um, I read On the Train to Moscow, which was about a uh, Russian actress during the time of Stalin. And it was about the, um, it was about all that she went through. Um, and I found it very inspirational. And I also find it level setting because I think when you read those books, it reminds you of how bad life can get. Uh, but again, the power of the individual. So uh, The Train from Moscow is a great book. Mm -hmm.